Welcome to the Sperber Prize podcast, a show where I'll talk to winners and nominees of Fordham's annual award given in honor of author Anne Sperber and her biography of Edward R. Murrow. The Sperber Prize seeks to promote outstanding biographies and memoirs detailing the unseen backgrounds of some of history's biggest stories in print and electronic journalism. This season, we'll be looking at themes of sexism, ethics, technology, objectivity, and more. I'm your host, Rena Lokai. Today, I'll be talking to award-winning journalist Margaret Sullivan. She's a former columnist for The Washington Post and the fifth public editor of The New York Times, the first woman to ever hold the position. Her book, Newsroom Confidential, follows her story from working for the Buffalo News to The New York Times to The Washington Post. Margaret, thank you so much for being here. No problem at all. I'm, I'm happy to do it. So your book was amazing. I could not put it down. Thank you. I'm so glad you liked it. Um, and I kind of want to start first broadly why you even decided to write this book. Like what made you think this is a story that needs to be told? Right. Well, it's weird because I had gotten through most of my life and my career without writing a book. But then in 2020, I wrote this other book um, that was published by Columbia Global Reports, which is an academic press called Ghosting the News. And it was about local journal, the sort of the decline of local journalism. And it was like a small book, you know, came out in paperback only, short, but it kind of whet my appetite for writing a book. And it was a lot of, both. they're both, they were both a lot of work, but just the process of writing it and bringing it out and getting the response to it was really interesting. So I did feel like I had another story to tell or a story to tell, which particularly was the New York Times piece of it. You know, my experience as public editor, because it's such a weird job and it's such an unusual opportunity to have to hold the New York Times to account for its readers. And then, you know, as you know, the Times ended that position, not while I was there, but like a year after I left. And that also made it, you know, interesting, I think, and kind of timely and newsworthy. So I wanted to tell that story. And then I had been at the Washington Post for a while during the Trump era. And I thought, you know, I could really sort of write something that had three pieces to it, which were basically Buffalo, the Times and Washington slash Trump. And so I guess I just felt like I had a story to tell that was about women in journalism, that was about women and careers and about the state we're in as a country. And then I also just had this, this kind of urge to, this is the wrong word, but to kind of catalog my life, you know, to kind of look at my life and sort of to try to make sense of it. So that's, that's what, I think motivated me. And then, you know, it's weird when you write a book, they kind of they kind of have a life of their own to some extent. So I started out writing a memoir strictly, and then it turned into kind of what I've called a memoir slash manifesto because, you know, it has a larger message about about journalism and and about how how journalists need to be in this era when democracy is on the decline and is threatened, including in the United States, that 
that mainstream journalists need to be at their best, but they often aren't. Um, So you mentioned your progression from going to Buffalo to the New York Times to the Washington Post. So I want to start first in Buffalo. And you talk there about the successes that you had, but you also talk about some of the mistakes that you may have made, namely Mm -hmm. the one with the victims of the shooting that happened in Buffalo and how you went about that. So what was your thought process in including both the highs and the lows in your book? Yeah, well, I I found in my life that I learned probably the most from my failures and my shortcomings. So how interesting is it to talk about, you know, the number of, you know, awards we won or stuff like that, or like promotions I got? I don't know. To me, it's kind of to acknowledge the things that I did wrong and why and like kind of what the process of trying to make amends was and how successful or not that was. I mean, I'm still haunted by that event, not not by the event. The event was complete, completely reasonable. The, in other words, the, the gathering at the church where I was held to account by the African-American community in Buffalo, that made perfect sense. But my decision-making on that story, I still, you know, I realize now I was thinking strictly like a journalist and not like a person. You know, I was thinking about the news value of it and the interest it would have for a community that was trying to figure out who the shooter was because it told us something about, you know, the the arrests and so on told us something about the gathering, but at what cost, right? And should that information have even been, you know, should it have even been made public? at all? Maybe not. I mean, I've made, a, you know, I've been in journalism for a long time. I've made a lot of mistakes. I've made small mistakes and I remember them all. <laughs> and I guess I think it's good to acknowledge them and to realize that I realized that I've been very fortunate in being able to recover from them all. Well, seemingly anyway, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Career-wise, I've been able to recover from them all, you know, and I've learned something. So, you know, that's that's why. So then you took these lessons that you learned and you brought them over to the New York Times as public editor, where you were almost, you had to kind of pinpoint the mistakes that other journalists made. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering while there, did you have a moment where you were proudest of your work there? Or maybe a moment where your work was the hardest that it had ever been? Well, it was really hard to know what effect you were having in in real terms, because even if the Times made some changes, which they did, like the changes about anonymous sources and some policy things, they would never attribute it to the public editor. They just would say, well, they, we were going to do this anyway. And that's fine. You know, that was completely fine. But I think the thing that I felt the best about, and this was not one incident, started right from the beginning and it went all the way through this nearly four-year period was how much appreciation the readers had for someone expressing their concerns and doing something about it, like taking those concerns and taking them to editors and saying, what gives? Why did you do this? And then, you know, writing about it publicly and coming to a conclusion, whether my conclusions were generally right or wrong, I don't know. But people seem to appreciate that I took their concerns seriously, I got answers, and I then synthesized it, and I came to a conclusion. 
you know, and people would express this constantly. Thank you. You know, you, you know, you, you're so important to us. Thank you for the job you're doing. I, you know, hearing from regular people, hearing from the readers of the New York Times who love the paper in many cases and wanted it to be at its best and appreciated my role. That was fantastic. The hard part and the part that was really difficult was being at the Times, coming into that newsroom every day and knowing that there were just so many people who were mad at me, you know, because they didn't want their work held to account in many cases, or they, it wasn't so much that they saw it differently. You know, they rarely saw it from the reader's point of view. You know, so I think about, I don't know if you followed this controversy over the weekend, but there were times ran this big piece about Elizabeth Holmes, the um, former head of Theranos, the, the company that basically said they could do this blood test and she's been convicted of a crime. And the Times did this big puffy profile of her that made it seem like she was a terrific person and when actually she's a convicted criminal and a known liar. And people were going nuts about that, readers, but there was no one to take it to. You know, there is no public editor anymore. I know that if I had written a critical piece about that, it would have made a lot of people internally upset. And I can understand why, because it's no fun to be criticized. So you mentioned two things that I want to ask. So first, um, you're used to constantly, at, during your role as public editor, mentioning people and mentioning their articles and maybe criticizing them. How did you feel doing that through your book, where you mentioned specific people in specific instances, but you published it in a book? Right. Yeah, well, it was different because I had more perspective on it. I was revisiting things that people in some cases probably wished I would never revisit. I mean, like in the case of um, Sarah Maslin Neer, who wrote the big series about the nail salons in New York. In many ways, that was a great piece of work. And I also thought it was flawed. And she was a Pulitzer finalist, but she didn't win the Pulitzer, right? And, you know, did I have a role in that somehow? Or did the reader's criticism, which I gave voice to, was that an inhibiting factor in keeping her from actually winning a Pulitzer? You know, maybe. And I don't know. I never really talked to her about it afterwards, although we had gotten to know each other beforehand. It brings up the same issues. It's like the painful stuff, the good stuff, what I was trying to do, how well or not well I did it. You know, and I'm a flawed person, too. So I was bringing my own inability to be perfect, you know, to the role of public editor. But I will say that I did it with as much energy as I could summon and to the best of my ability. So then you left the role of public editor. And then shortly after, you said that they removed the role altogether. Do you think that the Times or even the Post, which had had it for a brief period, do you think that news organizations like this should bring back the role of public editor? I think it would be good, but I don't think they ever will. Because I think that it came up during an era when there was really troubling scandal in each of those news organizations. or There had been something that had gone on that had caused them to say, we need to do this. And at the Times... Almost directly, it was caused by the whole Jason Blair plagiarism fabrication controversy scandal, really, and the resignation of an editor and a managing editor. You know, it was like a time of incredible turmoil. But then they established this thing. Its success or acceptability to them depended greatly on who was doing it. 
and then it was a rotating sort of cast of care, not rotating, but a, it was only held for a certain amount of time by design by each person. So, you know, there was a great amount of difference in how each person sort of approached it. And I think they were okay with the way some people approached it. They actually were pretty okay with the way I approached it. I mean, Arthur Salzberger, who was my boss, did ask me to stay longer. So even though he knew, you know, that I was tough, of course, he wasn't in the newsroom. So I don't know that the newsroom would have asked me to stay longer, but he did. But I just think that when they did get rid of that role, it was with a great amount of relief on their parts. You know, it was like they saw an opportunity, took it and rid themselves of this annoying burr under the saddle that they could see the benefit of it, but they the benefit didn't really measure up to how annoying it was. I mean, more than annoying, you know, they thought in some cases, I think they thought that it was dangerous and, and destructive almost to have somebody with so much power. Like I didn't have any actual power but I had the power of my voice and it mattered. So then when you left, it was a few months before the 2016 election happened. And I know in your book, you were going back and forth on whether you should have stayed a few more months or whether you should. Right. have. So now in 2023, knowing that everything, you know, do you think that you should have stayed or are you content with your decision to have left at that time? I mean, I still think I left for the right reasons, which included that I felt like I was losing my ability to function as an outsider. You know, you really have to be an outsider. And after three and a half or whatever it was, years, I no longer felt truly like an outsider. I'd been walking into that building every day for that amount of time. And I had made some friends and I had eaten in the same cafeteria. And, you know, I started to feel like, oh, I'm part of the New York Times here. And that's dangerous. I mean, you have an inside role, but you're basically an outsider. And then, of course, you know, I did think that the Times coverage of the election was really flawed, particularly its coverage of Hillary Clinton's vast overemphasis on her email practices and the Times's power in influencing the rest of the media ecosystem could I have restrained that if I were there? I don't think in any meaningful way. I think I could have pointed it out. I hope I would have seen it. I think I would have seen it and understood it. Could I have really changed it to the point where they would have changed their coverage and Donald Trump would not have been elected? That seems like a stretch to me. You know, I was able to then go to the post and be in Washington when this incredible thing was happening, which was Trump and getting elected and everything that that followed. And, you know, just from a personal experience point of view, I wouldn't have wanted to give that up. And I also think that my columns about Trump and what he was doing to the relationship between media and the public and the way he was disparaging the press and the effect that was having on the American public. I mean, I feel like that was important work that I'm glad I was able to do in a broader context, not just about the New York Times, but about like you know, CNN and and the Times, CNN and the Times and the major networks and, you know, all of that. Like, I think that was work I was meant to do or that I'm happy I got a chance to do. So I'm reasonably assured, reassured that I made it a good decision. 
And then when you went to the post, you essentially created your own job there. And yeah. I was wondering what that process was like. Well, you know, I knew the editor of the post, Marty Barron, because when he had been the editor of the Boston Globe, very famously, the guy in Spotlight, the movie Spotlight, he was the editor played by Liev Schreiber. But, you know, Marty was the editor, top editor in Boston, and I was the top editor in Buffalo. And we got to know each other a little bit because we were both top editors. And we had some other, you know, we were on an editor's trip together and we met each other here and there. So I had an acquaintance with him. I wouldn't say we were huge friends or anything, but enough that I could reach out to him, which I did, I think under the guise of, well, I'm starting to look for a job and do you have any advice? But I actually had something more definite in mind. <laughs> and so when I did have lunch with him in Washington, I pitched him on this job that I thought I could do for the post. And this really is a piece of hubris on my part. But I said to him that I wanted to sort of be the David Carr of the Washington Post. And David Carr had been the media columnist at the New York Times and very revered. And he had died, you know, at a young age, suddenly. And Marty, I think, was intrigued by that idea. And it wasn't as if he then said, you know, poof, I wave a magic wand and you have the job. But he asked me to write a memo, and then I went through rounds of talking to different editors there. And so, you know, there was due diligence, but it was my idea, and I did work hard to make it happen. And I was lucky that I had this acquaintanceship with Marty where he was willing to listen to it. And then I had to do all the other work that was associated with it, and, you know, and it worked out. It's another job I left voluntarily. Once I found out that I could leave jobs, like... I was in Buffalo for, you know, three decades. I didn't think, you know, you could actually do anything else. But once I uprooted myself, <laughs> then I found out, oh, you can actually leave jobs and it's okay. And you find other things to do. So that's what's been happening ever since. I mean, some of that, to be honest, was that my children were younger and I wasn't going to move to another city when they were in school in Buffalo. That wouldn't have been okay. So by the time I was ready to move to New York, my youngest, Grace, was at NYU, you know, moving to New York. She was like, are you following me to college or what? But, you know, I felt from a mother's point of view that it was okay for me to leave their hometown. As I was reading the book, I noticed that you did bring up the fact that you were a mother, but it wasn't a big part of your book. So I guess I kind of wanted to ask how you went about juggling your roles as a journalist and a reporter and as a mother at the same time. Yeah, thanks for asking that. Um, yeah, and I think the reason I didn't go deeply into it, a couple things. One was that this is basically a career memoir, but I did want to bring it up because I think it's important. And I think if you're talking about women's careers, it's, it becomes even more important. I got very mixed messages from my own mother about how to manage a career and motherhood. The, the gist of it was do both with no advice as to how, because she was very talented department store buyer, like in the retail business. She had a meteoric rise until she was 30 or 31. And then she got married and got pregnant and like Fady bar the door it was over. She never, this was in the 50s. You know, she never went back to that kind of work. And so I think she wanted me to have what she didn't have. But she also really, really wanted me to have a, a family and children. So the messages were really mixed. And I guess I just thought, well, 
I will just forge ahead and let my instincts guide me. And I was married in my 20s and I was married for a long time and we had children, which I'm very grateful for. And I had this career that was really progressing, you know, going from reporter to editor, to managing editor, to top editor of the paper, a lot of it while I was still married. And it was like something had to give, you know, I know some people can pull that off, but I really wasn't able to. And the thing that gave way was the marriage. I have, and my former husband has a good relationship with our kids, and we all get along. In fact, we're going to my daughter's law school graduation next week, and my son is a lawyer. They're both public interest lawyers or will be. And so that has all worked out well, and I think my career has worked out well. But that's a real sadness for me that that's something that certainly my parents thought was extremely important which was an intact family that I wasn't able to accomplish or chose, actually, I have to say, chose not to make my top priority. Because if I had made it my top priority, keeping my marriage together, I absolutely would have had to not become my full self in other ways. And I just really, I don't know, just from a spiritual point of view, I I couldn't do that. I've been reading a lot of memoirs where there's like the undertones of women and sometimes women having to give up their career for men or other times women who have sacrificed relationships to get ahead in their careers. I was wondering if it might have been better for you to have not gotten married early in your 20s and waited and gotten ahead in your career first and if that would have changed anything. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, things come along when they come along, you know, and I wasn't, it's not like I was 21. I had just turned 28 when I actually got married. And then, you know, we were married for a couple of years. And then I had my first child at 31 and my second child at 35. So there's only so long you can wait, as you know. If you really want to be a mother, it seems to me to be a big gamble to take to walk away from or reject the chance to do that when you can, because your window is actually very small. I mean, it's not small if you're, if you get pregnant at 19, but if you, you know, if you've gone to college, perhaps graduate school, you've started your career, you get married, you know, after all of that, you know, you don't have a ton of time. And so it honestly, I have to say it never occurred to me. I mean, my brothers and I all got married. They're older than I am. But we all got married within a close, you know, very short amount of time. We all started having our children together so that there are seven grandchildren. They go in age range, like one after the other for seven years. So it was just like, it's what we were doing. And I never, ever thought, gee, should I not marry this particular person and see if something comes along in five years or 10 years. Like, uh, no, it was just kind of like, this was the thing to do at the time. And I actually think that it's good to do that because love and marriage and having a family are not actually something you can plan that well. You can't really plan the love part of it at all. And you can try to plan the other parts, but you know, someone else is involved. I just think, you know, I think the thing that that is tough to take about it all is that I really believe that if the roles were reversed and that it had been the man who had gotten promoted 
and who had this career trajectory, I don't think there would have been the, the pressures that would have busted us up. There were no answers. There aren't. There were no good answers then. I don't know that there's really great answers now either, you know? So I think you just have to forge ahead and follow your heart and make decisions as they come up and, uh, you know, suffer the, you know, take the consequences, whatever they may be, which could be, for example, that a marriage doesn't work out, but could also be, oh, I never got the chance to have kids. I kind of wish I had, but I didn't. I mean, to me, I will always be grateful to my ex-husband and to my own decision-making at that time because I have my kids and, you know, they're young adults now, but, you know, at this point, it's the most important thing I've ever done. However, I would not have given up having a career. So, you know, I did try to balance it. And as I said, I didn't do that very perfectly. And I, admi you know, I admire and I envy women who have somehow managed all of that. But, you know, I've had a good life and I have been able to move on from it reasonably successfully. Well, you have two kids who are going to be lawyers and you've yes. had an amazing career. Yeah. So I think you could say that you did it pretty perfectly. Well, I don't know. I, uh, I, I, hope, I hope that's true. And I mean, I feel like I have other wonderful people in my life as well. I want to go a little bit into the end of your book where you talk a lot about um, objectivity and the hyperpartisanship that we see in this country. Yeah. Um, so you say that a lot of it, or at least what you've come to decide, is that a lot of it is based off Fox News and their reporting. So do you think that if Fox News somehow never came to fruition and never existed. Do you think that we would still see this divide and this record low trust in the media that we have? I don't. I, I think I think things would be better in our country without Fox News. I really actually blame Rupert Murdoch and Ro Roger Ailes and the rest of the cast of characters, including and up to and including Tucker Carlson, for at least an important piece of the problems we're having. I've, I've heard people in other countries, uh, New Zealand, for example, say, yeah, we, we have a more successful democracy and system because we don't have the equivalent of Fox News. And I mean, in certain European countries as well. So I, I do think that it's been a very destructive force for us. And it's obviously not just Fox, it's Fox at the center of this right wing kind of media slash political system that, you know, has a an agenda and a project. And the project is, to some extent, destabilizing democracy. And it's happened. It's happening. I hope, you know, luckily, you know, after the 2016 and 2020 elections, we still have a functioning, you know, voting system and democracy. But let's face it, it's been very, very threatened and on the brink. January 6th and the effort to overturn the election and the interference from the Russians that took place in 2020 through Facebook and other other methods, I think all of which right wing media had a role in exacerbating. We're not exactly in great shape here. The reality is now that, like you said, we do have this divide, but we also have, you know, two different news sources handling the same subject, for example, but saying two completely different things. 
and readers who think one way will go to the one article and readers who think the other way will go to the other article. How do we stop that from happening? Yeah, well, I mean, I think there are a couple of things that we as a country can do to limit that. One is to support local journalism because local journalism is more trusted and it has an ability to speak to the whole community, no matter where you're coming from politically. And that's because, in part because, you know the people running that news organization. You know that their kids are in school with your kids, or you might meet up with them at the grocery store. There's a lot of reasons that local journalism is is more trusted. So that's one piece of it. And I also think it would be great and really important to teach media literacy in school and to the public, not just to young people, but to the public generally, so that they can recognize misinformation and learn to kind of compare and contrast stories to see what's true and what's not true. So those are two things that come to mind. I think I, in my book, I actually have a four-point program, but those are two of the things that, oh, I think that, that the news media needs to be more transparent with its audience and tell people how we do our work you know, show our work to the extent that we can. And I don't think any of these things will fix the problem, but they can all help to address it. So do you think that in future lifetimes, we will ever get back to a place where people have 70% trust in the media like they did decades ago? I always say that journalists should not try to make predictions because we're very bad at it. So I think I'll take my advice on that. I don't think we will go back. I think we have to go forward. You know, so we're not going to go back to a time when there's like everybody gets the local paper and there's only three TV networks and they're all telling the same story. I don't even think we'd want to go back to that because did that really represent everyone in a community? Was that really kind of a white male establishment perspective? Yes, it was. So I think going forward, we need to like explore and support new forms of media, nonprofits, for example, all digital organizations that speak to a particular somewhat disenfranchised group. You know, all of that will be a part of how we can get to a healthier place. And you also mentioned that going forward, journalists need to kind of tweak their definition of what objectivity is and what they think it is. So instead of having no opinions or no biases, you understand your opinions and understand your biases and take the facts and say them as it is. Um, So do you think your definition of objectivity changed from Buffalo to the New York Times to the Washington Post? I find the, I'm sorry to get gluey about this, but I actually find the whole debate about objectivity to be a little pointless in that all good journalists approach stories the same way, with an open mind and with an effort to tell the truth. We all bring something to it so we can, none of us personally can be completely objective, but we can work to be accurate and fair and not necessarily neutral because I don't think we should be neutral on the questions of should people have the right to vote. I don't want to be neutral about that. I actually have a strong opinion about that. Um, I have a strong opinion about civil rights, about women's rights. And I think that when we choose to do a series of stories or a particular investigation or whatever it may be, that's part of what we come with. But then when we do the reporting, we should approach it with an open mind. And even 
particularly report against our own biases. Like if I think, oh, well, it's obviously true that X, you better go do the reporting from the other side so that no matter what you end up writing or broadcasting, you understand the full picture. So that's, I think, the important thing. And so the sort of like, do you believe in objectivity debate? It's just a way for us to fight about nothing. Then my last question is going to be, what do you think your biggest piece of advice would be to um, journalists who are in the career now as young journalists or going into the career, especially during a time where social media has kind of taken over, which is something you mentioned in your book a lot. How are we supposed to navigate all this? I think the important thing is to remember the mission of journalism, which is not to build your own brand and it is not to have the most followers and it is not to have the most clicks on a particular story or to serve the shareholders. It's we have a public facing mission, which is to inform the public about powerful institutions and people. I mean, that's not our only job, because I also think we have a job to do, which has to do with like being the sort of village square for people to come together and talk about things. But our most important thing is this mission of serving the public. And I think that if we stick with that as the top priority, it clarifies everything. It will clarify everything for from top, it'll clarify things for top editors, for every reporter, for every student journalist. You know, what are you doing this for? If you're trying to get rich and famous, there are more direct ways to do it than being a journalist. You know, we all know that. So, so that's my advice. Thank you so much for this. And you're welcome. Thanks for your questions. And I'm glad you're, I'm really happy that you liked the book. Tune in next week to continue this conversation of being a female journalist trying to maintain a family. We'll talk to Stephen Roberts, who tells the story of his wife, Koki, in his book, Koki, A Life Well Lived. Special thanks to today's guest, Margaret Sullivan, to Fordham University, and to the Sperber Prize Committee for making this show possible. For more information about the Sperber Prize, you can visit our website at sperberprize.com. I'm your host, Rena Lokai, and thanks for listening. <laughs>